blood that our sins might be forgiven, that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, so that we may enjoy and know the life of God living in us, and that we may one day rejoice when he comes back for us, Father. We will do this regularly until you return for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Amen. If you are visiting with us, we welcome you today. We're so glad that you've come and uh, shared this day of worship with us. We have a few announcements before we look at the 22nd chapter of Genesis and our ongoing series this summer into the relationship between Abraham and God. This Wednesday is our first Wednesday prayer. We have the prayer meeting each first Wednesday of the month, and so it will be at 6.30 this Wednesday. We invite you all to come. There's a church open house where we're going to um, invite the community to come and be a part of and see our uh, facility on Saturday, August the 23rd, and it's from 11 to 2, and we're going to have a gourmet meal uh, served that day of the best hot dogs you've ever found, and um, there's going to be homemade treats for everybody. We'll give tour, tours of the facility, live music, and um, we really want you to take, there's an invitation card in your bulletin, and we'd like for you to take that and maybe a couple others and just give them to friends and people that even go to other churches. We'd love for the body of Christ and this community to come in and uh, see what's going on here at Grace and to visit our new facility, and that's going to be August the 23rd. We also announced this past week through email that Alan Justice, our dear friend, went to be with Jesus this past week, and his memorial service will be tomorrow at 1030 a.m. right here as we share uh, the beauty of what God has done in Alan's life and uh, share stories together. And um, if you knew Alan, there's a lot of stories. <laughs> and we want to come and just celebrate God's grace tomorrow morning. As I am gone this, these next two weeks uh, serving in Moldova, um, I'm excited to uh, announce the speakers that will be here next Sunday. Bill Loveless will speak. He is from, uh, he's the executive director of Christ is Life Ministries. And the next Sunday, the 17th, Dr. John Best will be here. He's a former professor at Dallas Seminary, but also the founder of Exchange Life Ministries. And uh, the message, they know each other, and the message that they will bring, both of them will be about the goodness and the glory of God that has been given to us and the exchange that has been made, our sin for his life. And I know that you'll want to be here these next two Sundays. We are in a series uh, from Genesis, and today we're found, we find ourselves in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. And the question that I would open up with you today is this, do you like to take tests? Life is full of all kinds of tests, isn't it? What's the purpose of tests? Well, you might think of your algebra teacher back in high school sometime. An algebra test is to see what you know about math. We have things that we call a test tube in science. It's something you use to run experiments so you can find out information and draw conclusions. A test drive is what you take with a new car to see, does it handle right? Is it what you want? A test is an investigation into what something or someone is all about, what they know, what they don't know. It really is to gain information. So does God test people? I'll ask it again. Does God test people? 
And if he does, what could be his motivation? I mean, God knows everything, so why does he have to run a test on someone to find out something? Does God need to find out something? God doesn't need to find out anything. He knows that everything. He knows everything. Could it be that God puts tests into our life for our own benefit, for our own discovery, our own strengthening? I don't know if you're happy to hear this or not, but in the New Testament, the Greek word for test is also the Greek word for temptation. Every temptation is a matter of a test, isn't it? Every temptation exposes the inner life of someone. In one respect, all of life is just one big long test. I heard one author say that once. All of life is a test. Because it reveals the inner us, the inner character of each person. It shapes us. How you handle things, temptations, conflict, failure, success, it all reveals something about you. And most every day, you're going to face some kind of test. I heard someone say this once. He said, you never fail God's tests. You just keep taking them until you pass. (laughs) Our study today, Life of Abraham. If you've been with us this whole study, you'll you'll know that, uh, well, Abraham's just not perfect. Abraham has a lot of failures in his life. He has a lot of bad decisions. He has to live out the consequences of some of his bad decisions. He struggles from time to time. But I want you to know today that Abraham is our hero. (laughs) Abraham passes the test. We're in the book of Genesis Let me read the first three verses of 22, chapter 22. Well, just to bring you a little background here, you know, Abraham, the Lord came to Abraham when he was 75, said, you're going to be the the father of a great nation, a great multitude. You're going to have a son, you and Sarah. And so he waits 25 years. When's it coming? When's it going to happen? He's, He's 100 years old. Sarah's 90. They have Isaac, the son. Isaac is now a teenager. He's grown, and Abraham and Isaac have become father and son. They bonded together, and that's what brings us to the 22nd chapter here. It says this, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Well, that answers the question, does God test people? (laughs) God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and he split wood for the burnt offering and rose and and he rose and went to the place of which God had told him. Pretty just matter of factly presented, isn't it? (laughs) But can you imagine receiving this kind of call from the Lord God? The call to offer up your son as a living sacrifice. And the first thing we see here is that this is God doing this. It's God's testing Abraham. And you think about that. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God come to Abraham and say, 
Abraham, I know you waited a long time for Isaac. He's your only son. And even, God even makes the point to say, Abraham, I know you love him. But I want you to offer him to me as a sacrifice. I want you to slay your son. Why is it that God would put such a test in his path? And here's three reasons. The first reason would be God tests us to show us ourselves. Sometimes when we have a temptation that comes our way or we have a situation that is difficult or God even leads us into difficulty, it shows us something about who we are. It reveals character. It reveals our integrity. It reveals our vulnerabilities. A second thing that a test might be, God tests us to make us choose. Do you love me? And do you love the things of this world? Do you really love me? Am I really all you need? Am I everything to you? Well, let's make a choice. And third, God tests us to grow our faith. I don't know about you, but when I look back over my life, the greatest seasons of growth came at the greatest tests of my life. When my faith was built and my faith just lurched forward was when I really had to trust God in the middle of something that was beyond my capabilities. This test was not so that God would find out something about Abraham to see how he would react. God knew how he would react. It was to reveal to Abraham how far he had come, how strong his faith was to solidify this spiritual path his obedient heart had trod. I tried to put myself in his shoes. In in the passage, it just says that uh, God told him to do this, and then the next morning he got up and did it. But don't you think there's something that kind of went on in the heart of Abraham that night? He had waited 25 years for the promise of God to be realized through the birth of his son. And now his son was this strong teenager and had become the most priceless treasure in his life, I'm sure. And maybe he had become so treasured that it threatened Abraham's relationship with God. Can your child become your idol? Can you worship children? And Abraham is most likely wrestling with these two facts. God had promised him and Sarah a son, and God had delivered on that promise with the birth of Isaac. God had promised to bring a great multitude of descendants to Abraham, and he had promised to do it through Isaac. And now God wants Abraham to kill Isaac. Something doesn't compute. (laughs) We have some insight in in the book of Hebrews, in the great faith chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, as to how Abraham must have been putting this together in his mind. Because he's dealing with a self-contradictory God. You promised this, and now you want to take it away. I don't get this. Look what it says in Hebrews 11, 17 to 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. Verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people from, even from the dead, from which he also received him, his son Isaac, back as a type. But at the time, Abraham really had no idea what God was up to. So here's a point to consider. Sometimes faith really is blind. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? <laughs> Does God sometimes say, step here and you just, okay. I want you to go here. I want you to have this conversation. Why? That doesn't seem like the right thing to do. That doesn't seem the logical thing to do. And God is saying, I want you to trust me. Faith is a risk. Faith is a risk we take that God knows what he's doing. Always. Can you have faith if you're not risking? I don't think so. Because faith is that absolute trust in another. It's that I believe in you. And therefore I will step out based upon your call in my life. Well, have you ever known what God wanted you to do, but it went against what you thought might be the logical thing? Better yet, will, you, will, will God purposefully send you into conflicts or risky situations or have, you cut, or have you cut off relationships or take actions that you consider drastic? Will God have you do those kinds of things? He does it all the time. He does it all the time. I, I think sometimes we have to... We have to come to terms with our life's goal sometimes, our life's desire to be well-fed, comfortable, and happy. (laughs) Surely that's what God wants for me. He wants me well-fed, comfortable, and happy. Well, He wants me to take that. Well, that's going to... He wants me to take that step. Well, it's going to create a conflict, and that's going to interrupt my being well-fed, comfortable, and happy. So it can't be God's will. See where we get sometimes? I'm here to tell you, I'm here to testify. (laughs) God will rock your boat. Because he loves you so very much. He has so much planned for you. He has so much he wants to do through you. He has so much love he wants you to experience that he will do whatever he has to. For you to understand and know the reality of Him. As Paul Harvey would say, some of you are going, who is that? But as Paul Harvey would say, here's the rest of the story. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. The parallel between Christ and the cross is so amazing here. Who's carrying the wood? The sacrifice. 
Isaac. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And Abraham once again says, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now you have to understand, how old is Abraham here? He's in his hundred and teens. <laughs> and his son is a teenager. There had to be some compliance here from the sacrifice himself, right? Just like Jesus. Verse 10, Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said again, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by, its, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a, a burnt, for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said this. He said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall prosper the gate of their enemies. I mean, possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because you've obeyed my voice. Amen. You know, when I was in high school, one of my favorite authors was a man named A.W. Tozer. You've probably read some of his books. Great writer. I still enjoy reading his books. But when I was in high school, I read his book, The Pursuit of God. It's probably his classic. And it really did change the course and the trajectory of my life. And I'll never forget this one chapter from that book. And maybe you have these lifelong go-to chapters of certain books that you've read. <laughs> this is one of those chapters for me. I, I continually go back from time to time and read this chapter because of the effect it had on me in my formative spiritual life. It brings back great memories of the work of God. I think it's the second or third chapter in that book, and it's, it's titled this. The, the title is The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, and it's based on this story from, the Genesis, from Genesis 22. And the point that he makes is this. We'll put it up on the screen. It says, life is blessed when you possess nothing. And everybody says amen to that, Right? Your life is most blessed when you absolutely possess nothing. He writes about uh, Abraham wrestling with this instruction from God, that night, the night between the call and the leaving. 
Tozer says this, The sacred writer spares us a close-up of the agony that night on the slopes near Beersheba when the aged man headed out with his God. But respectful imagination may view in awe the bent form wrestling convulsively alone under the stars. And possibly not again until one greater than Abraham wrestled in the Garden of Gethsemane did such mortal pain visit a human soul. If only the man himself might be allowed to die. Oh, that would have been a thousand times easier, for he was old now, and to die would have been no great ordeal for one who had walked so long with God. Have you ever had God remove things from your heart? It's like surgery. Maybe it's an idol that you've you've kind of held close. You've rationalized that it's okay. But it's, it's where you run to when you're hurting. It's where you run to when you feel so good that you want to rejoice. And you run to that idol, that place, that relationship, that addiction. This surgery of God cuts deep in order to to, to, to prune away our attachments and our possessions and our, our security blankets, our loves, our idols. It cuts deep to, to cut away everything. There's, there's this work of God that is so complete, so transformative. He wants us completely Exposed, completely bare, completely stripped clean, totally, completely spiritually impoverished. So that he becomes the attachment, the object, the only object of worship. Jesus said it this way, the first line from the great Sermon on the Mount. Do you know what the first line from the great Sermon on the Mount is how he starts his whole explanation of what a Christian looks like. This is the first line. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the way Jesus put it. He's saying that when you are totally impoverished to the world and its ways and its thinking and its values and its system, when you are completely void, impoverished to it, you gain everything. You gain everything. The very kingdom of heaven, right in the here and now. And if that is the case, and it is, we should then, as Christ followers, be on the lookout. We should have our radar up or anything that might become a rival with God in our heart. Because we know that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That life is truly blessed when we possess nothing. Every time I have an unhealthy concern, unhealthy worry for stuff in my life, my kids, my money, my future, whatever, whenever that angst comes and that 
It should be a sign to me that I've taken possession. I now possess something. I own something. It is in my heart. And it is stealing away, robbing away the wonderful life of God, the expression of God in me. Are things like that important to us? Sure, they're important, but God can put this spiritual detachment where they don't become idols where we can really present our kids into the hands of God. We really can present our life and our future and our possessions and our resources and really let them go into the hands of God. The point of this chapter in Tozer's book is that living a truly blessed life only comes through this renunciation, this expulsion of Everything except God himself. I think of people today, and it seems like there's an endless search for true joy and happiness apart from God. There's some people that think they can find it going their own way if they're just master of their own domain, and they live life for all the gusto they can get. They're hedonistic, only seeking the next fun activity. When's the next vacation, the next party? I want to just do whatever I want to do. It's that eat, drink, and be merry mindset. And believe it or not, there are some people in the world that think their life would be better if they just had more money. Can you believe that? They don't don't take jobs based on the call of God, but on what makes the most money. The culture's taught them that the subtle message that more money equals more happiness. If I could could have the, the, the wealth of that guy over there, man... I'd be so happy. I like to watch golf. I know that puts me in the weird category, but I really do like to watch golf. And you don't have to be a golf fan to know what's happened over the last few years with uh, Mr. Tiger Woods. He, he lived what most people in our culture would say. is He, he lived a good life. He had... All the money he ever needed. He had a beautiful wife. He has two kids and all. He also threw in a lot of other women and lavish vacations and all kinds of parties. And he had it all, right? He did whatever he wanted to do, whenever he wanted to do it. And he's crashed and burned. And I heard this week another golfer, Dustin Johnson, is withdrawing from the game for a while because he needs to seek professional help for his personal challenges. And, and, and Dustin is one of those guys that is the same way. He just lives in the fast lane. I'm going to enjoy all the... I'm going to take part in whatever I want to do. You know, in actuality, living unto yourself destroys a person. I think that most people in our culture would probably actually do the same thing if they had the resources to do it. And I come back to this story in Genesis 22, and I like the way Tozer describes Abraham after this event. He says this, I have said that Abraham possessed nothing. Yet was not this poor man rich? I mean, by the world standards. Everything he had owned before was still his to enjoy. He still had sheep and camels and herds, and he had goods of every sort. He had also his wife and his friends, and best of all, he had his son Isaac safe by his side. He had everything, but he possessed nothing. 
And he says, there is the spiritual secret. There is the sweet theology of the heart which can be learned only in the school of renunciation. The books on systematic theology overlook this, but the wise will understand. He goes on and says, after that bitter and blessed experience, I think the words my and mine never again had the same meaning for Abraham. The sense of possession which they connote was gone from his heart. Things had been cast out forever. They had now become external to the man. His inner heart was free from them. And I like this part. He says, the world said, Abraham is rich. But the aged patriarch only smiled. He could not explain it, but he knew that he owned nothing. That his real treasures were inward and eternal. You know, instead of trying to get all we can, we're constantly purging all we can. So God remains alone in the place of worship. We said it last week, and it's so true. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Just remember that equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And Abraham names the place where this scene took take place. He calls it Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Do you have a lack in your life? Do you need resources in your life? Do you need the resource of wisdom? The Lord will provide. Do you need understanding? The Lord will provide. We live from Him as our resource, Him as our source. In fact, the more I place faith in God to provide and not look to myself, the more blessed life is. So are you going through a test? You know, we go through them periodically. Sometimes the tests are great. Sometimes the tests are minor. I think we go through some kind of test every day. Is, is God using a situation to make, maybe reveal something to you or make you choose I want you to know, I think we as a church are going through a test. I really do. I mean, we've been in this new facility, I don't know, four or five weeks now. There's a lot of excitement and there's also been a lot of change. And sometimes change is hard on a church. I mean, we've built a whole new building and we've moved a whole mile from where we used to be. And whenever you have something brand new and everything's new, it brings out opinions and preferences and likes and dislikes. And if we're not careful, we start to make unimportant things important. And I want you to know, one of the things that has always amazed me about this work of God in Georgetown here, this church, Grace Bible Church, is the, the overall unity of this body. The grace that has been exhibited by this body. Have we had problems? Well, let's see here. I know I'm an imperfect person. And I know you are too. (laughs) 
But there has always been this spirit that is genuine, welcoming. What I'm saying is that if this building is ever becomes something that is important, it's so vital, it's so crucial, it's so we've got to protect, we've got to, it's everything, then I'm just saying it shouldn't be. It can't be. It's God's church. Uh, this facility is a, a functional tool in the building of the kingdom of God. And I'm here to say that uh, I'm going to do everything I can to lead, to preach Jesus. (laughs) And that when people come into this church, and if they experience this church for very long, they're going to forget about the building. They're going to forget about what it looks like, and they're going to say, I see Jesus in that place. Those people love Jesus so much and they worship Jesus and they could worship if they were out in the cow pasture over here. They just love Jesus. And because they love him so much, they love one another so deeply. And there's a decision that we make because it just kind of seeps. It starts to begin to seep and the enemy's so crafty and he... He starts to make, well, what do you think about that? Shouldn't they have done that over there? Shouldn't they make that different? You know? And you start talking to somebody, and they start talking. I think uh, there's a group of us that think this ought to happen over here. You ever heard of that going on in a church? That's not going on here. But if we're not careful, <laughs> we have to make a conscious decision. We choose to possess nothing. We want him. I mean, we just want him. We want all of him. No distraction. We don't want to make anything unimportant important. It's all him. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your constant pursuit of us. And we see this story in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. And we see how you were pursuing Abraham. And this whole scene is at the end, towards the end of this story of Abraham. He still has several years to live, but we don't hear much about those years. And his wife dies in the next chapter. And so it's not like you were preparing him for some great work. You just were cleansing him so that he may draw into you and be encompassed with your love and have no idols in his heart but you. And you just loved him so much. And you wanted him completely for yourself. And the same is true of us today, Lord, as a church, as a, as a, fam- as a collection of families, as a collection of individuals. You are so much in pursuit of our heart and our soul. You want us so knit together with you, so bonded with you, so drawing from you and drinking from your fountain and eating at your table and seeing the resource that you... You want us so much to experience all of you. 
that you keep fighting on, off and fending off the, those distractions. And, and Father, we're today saying that we dedicate this facility to you completely and wholly. It's yours. We take it out of our hands and put it in yours. And Father, let us never put our hands on it. Oh, we pray, Father God, that you would just use it to find, so that people will find grace here and they will find the, the power of God in their life, that they will repent of sin here and they will see their lives changed and we'll see families redeemed and we'll see marriages healed. We'll see the message of grace and the truth of God's word lived out here. Father, would you do that in us? Transform us. Form us. Make us. Take from us all that is vying with you for our allegiance. And for this work that you do in us, Father, we will give you the praise, we will give you the glory, we'll give you the honor, the adoration. May you be lifted up in this place as we offer these things to you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want you to stand and I want you to sing this song, please. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want from me. Holiness, holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need.